Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Guide to Existence, where we will be exploring, really this week, the framework. We're going to go through the entire Torah portion like we did last week. I think that was pretty cool. And we'll try to take out some main themes and explore a little bit deeper some of the main mitzvahs in the Parsha, if we can. And let's see where it takes us. You guys ready? Put on your seatbelts. Let's drive. Or let's walk. Put on your hiking shoes. Let's walk. All right. And this week's Parsha, Baaloscha, which means when you lift up or when you ignite. And it's talking about, it begins with the lighting of the menorah in the temple. And um, it, I really talk about this every year because I have an idea on this that I really like. And I will talk about it again this year. But we can also explore some of the other themes as well. Um, the Parsha begins with the mitzvah of Aaron lighting the menorah in the temple, Aaron the priest. And the Talmud and the commentaries want to know why in the middle of nowhere are we talking about the lighting of the menorah. Last week's Parsha, we finished the Mishkan. The sanctuary was finished. And 12 of the tribes brought inaugurational offerings, which took place uh, on Rosh Chodesh Nisan the first of the month of Nisan, one year after the Exodus. And now things have come full circle. We have been at Mount Sinai already for almost a year. And in this week's partial, we begin the journey through the desert. We are preparing to leave Mount Sinai. So the commentators want to know what the connection is between Aaron and the priests. Why is this the first mitzvah that Aaron's told to do in the tabernacle now that it's been finished? And um, let's let's come back to that as we go through. Let's just run through the rest of the parsha. We have the inauguration of the Levites, the Levium, the tribe of Levi. My people are inaugurated, inaugurized to do the uh, services in the tabernacle to basically to carry the tabernacle and. Each of them are are um, are counted and purified, and they bring different offerings. All right, then we go to a the first Pesach Passover 2.0. We just got out of Egypt a year ago, and now it's time for Passover again. And Passover is celebrated for the second time in the desert. And there's a group of people that cannot participate in the Passover offering because they are impure. They're spiritually impure and they come to Moses and they say, fair. that's Hebrew for it's not fair. They say, why do we lose out? We want to participate in Passover also. So Moshe says, you know what? Great point. I'm going to give you another Passover. And hence we get the mitzvah of Pesach Sheni. Pesach 2.0. Point two, it's the second Passover of the second year in the desert. So not only is there a Passover on the 15th of the month of Nisan, but then there's another Passover on the 15th of the month of Er, the next month. For anyone who missed the first Passover, they get a second Passover. Now, this is kind of weird because if you miss Hanukkah, you don't get a second Hanukkah. You miss Yom Kippur, you don't get a second Yom Kippur. You miss Shabbos, you don't get to keep Shabbos on Tuesday. Why is there a second Passover? Why do you get another chance for Passover? Anyone want to take a guess?
All right, we'll we'll come back to it. Keep it in mind. Then we have the discussion of the journey, leaving Mount Sinai. And it says that there was a cloud covering the Mishkan, the tabernacle, the divine presence was audibly vis- visible. I don't know if audible and visible go together in the same sentence, but it was audibly visible. In fact, at Mount Sinai, it actually works very well because at Mount Sinai, you could see the sounds and hear the sights. Pretty cool. All right. A complete transformation of your senses. So there was a cloud over the tabernacle. And when it lifted up, that meant it was time to journey. And when it lowered down, that meant it was time to encamp. Okay? Keep that in mind. It's a very important point. When the cloud descends, we stop. When the cloud lifts, we journey. And then um, we t- it talks about the first journey as we leave uh, the Mount Sinai. And at that moment, everything goes downhill. Because what do Jews start doing the second we leave Mount Sinai? We do what we do best. What are Jews most famous for? Okay, yes, yes. We're famous for our innovations and our creativity and are being cheap but i say most famous in some ways for complaining the jews start complaining and they do it a lot in this week's parsha so they start complaining and they start complaining about the, the they're tired of walking and they want to settle down already and they come up with things to complain about that's not even like particularly worth complaining about. So we'll see some of the things they complain about. But in this this first complaint, they just kind of came up with an excuse to complain. They didn't really even have anything to complain about. But they they complained and from there they come to the second complaint. And the second complaint was that they miss the good old days back when we were slaves in Egypt. Because back in Egypt, we didn't have to work for a living. We got everything for free. They gave us food, our masters. Wouldn't it be nice to have a master? You don't have to worry about paying the rent. You just have to work for them and they pay the rent for you. So I guess there's some perks to being a slave. It says they miss the cucumbers and the watermelons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic, the fish they used to eat. And but what were they eating in the desert? They had mana, man. They had mystical, magical, spiritual bread. So which you know what the man tasted like? Tasted like whatever you wanted it to taste like. Literally you could imagine a steak and it tastes like steak. Actually, the Talmud says that from this, we see it didn't taste like these things. It didn't taste like cucumbers, onion, leek, or garlic. <laughs> but it tastes like everything else, all right? So it tasted really good. Actually, one of the reasons why we have two loaves of challah on Shabbos is in remembrance to the man, to the mystical bread. Because a double portion of it fell on Shabbos. And one of the explanations, so therefore we have two loaves of bread on on Shabbos. 
And one of the explanations, actually, this is interesting, for um, why a lot of times people cover their challah with poppy seeds or with uh, some sesame seeds is because I think the one of the European words for poppy seed is related to man. So, um, like hamantashen, I think actually is like pockets full of poppy seeds. So, in remembrance of the man. But anyway, um, so what were they complaining about? The f- it tasted so good, and it was totally nutritious. All per- perfect vitamins and minerals, exactly what your body needs. To the point that there was no 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 waste products. It was all absorbed in the body. It was perfect nutrition for the human body. So you know what they complained about? They missed going to the bathroom. How Jewish is that? All right. You got it all good and you just missed it. You miss spending time in in the John. All right, that's that's what that's what it says. Okay, so they're complaining and Moshe gets really upset and God ends up sending this this um quail flock that just lands from exhaustion in the desert after having flown like across the Mediterranean. And this is a real thing. It actually happens that quails will just collapse in the desert. And so a whole quail flock just collapsed in the desert and people started eating meat. God, Moshe says, you want meat? Eat meat. And it ended up not being good. There was a plague and people died. It wasn't good. And then towards the end of the Parsha, Miriam speaks badly about Moshe. She notices that Moshe had separated from his wife, Zipporah. And she says, what's going on with Moshe? He thinks he's better than us. We're also prophets and we're allowed to be married. So why is Moshe suddenly not married? He's not like being intimate with his wife. And Miriam gets in trouble for speaking badly about Moshe. And she gets saras, which is like a leprosy. And all the the Jewish people have to wait for for seven days for her to become pure before they can continue on their journey towards the Holy Land. That's it. That's the Parsha. There's one more thing might we add, which we've spoken about in previous years, that in this week's Parsha, there are actually a mysterious symbol that appears in this week's Parsha, which is an upside-down letter Nun. There are two upside-down letter Nuns that appear in this week's Parsha, randomly separating uh, three verses from the rest of the Parsha. And the Talmud tells us, actually, that these nuns represent a break between the first book of the, this Parsha, the first half of this book, the book of Numbers, and the second half of the book of Numbers. And these three words in, me, in the middle form their own book. So according to this opinion in the Talmud, there are actually seven books of Moses, not five. And in this week's Parsha, we actually have three of them that this little nun separate a whole section. And what is that section? It says, When the Aaron, when the Ark would travel, Moshe would say, get up, Hashem, and scatter the enemies, and may they flee before you. 
and then when it would rest, uh, when it would descend, he would say, rest, God, and the myriads of Israel. So, all right, it's interesting. Those verses somehow are worthy of their own book. What's going on? Okay, you ready, ladies and gentlemen? Let's try to tie some themes together and see what we come up with. So let's begin with my famous oldie but goodie idea about the Hanukkah candles, okay? Let's talk about the Hanukkah candles. Why is the Hanukkah menorah, the lighting of the menorah mentioned right next to the gifts, the voluntary gifts that the other tribes brought? as inaugurational offerings for the Mishkan. To start things off, they all brought a bunch of gifts. What's the connection? So says Rashi, quoting a Medrash, a Talmudic teaching, that Aaron was depressed. Why was Aaron depressed? Because Aaron felt bad that he, his tribe, the tribe of Levi, did not bring one of these inaugurational offerings. And he thought that for some reason his tribe was in trouble because of his involvement with the golden calf. And therefore, his tribe did not bring one of these initial offerings. The problem is, is that these initial offerings were voluntary. Anyone could bring them. He could have done it. But for some reason, he intuited that it wasn't the right thing to do. And because of that, he felt bad. So the Talmud says, so Hashem said to him, Aaron, you have nothing to feel bad about. Your con contribution to the Mishkan, to the tabernacle, is even greater than the heads of the tribes who brought these inaugurational offerings. Why? Because you get to light the menorah every single day. That is what Rashi tells us. But there's some problems with that. And I'll share with you some of the problems that Nachmanides asks on Rashi. Says Nachmanides, the Ramban, I don't get it. I want you guys to listen very carefully and tell me what Nachmanides is going to say. Ronnie, you're a lawyer in law school. Kate, you just graduated with a master's. Steph, you have some big job working for some company. You guys can do this, okay? You guys can figure out what Nachmanides is bothered by. In order to open up the points, let me explain a little bit further. You see, Aaron is upset because he didn't get to bring one of the inaugurational offerings. Why do you think he's upset about that? Well, why, why is the inaugurational offerings unique or special? Huh. It's the first, right? So he wants to be part of the first, the initial inauguration. So, so what does God? What what would God? It would have. What should have God told him? What What was Aaron asked? What was he looking for? He wants to be part of the inspiration of that initial time, right? But what does God tell him? Does he say, sure, you can be you can bring a first one also? 
He doesn't say that. Instead, one second. Welcome, Tatiana. Long time no see. <laughs> okay, you came at a perfect time, okay? Listen to this. I'm just going to catch her up just to this point. Aram, the high priest, is upset in this week's Parsha because last week's Parsha, all 12 leaders of the tribes brought inaugurational offerings for the Mishkan. They just completed the Mishkan and they bring their inauguration offerings. But Aaron's tribe did not bring one. And he's feeling a little depressed that he wasn't part of the initial inauguration, as Steph said, setting a precedence for what's going to come with this amazing tabernacle house for God that we just built. And so God says to Aaron, don't be depressed. You're doing something even greater than them. You get to light the menorah in the temple every single day. That is the Medrash that Rashi quotes. And the Ramban Nachmanides says, this is problematic. And I want you guys to try to understand why. Aaron is upset because he wants to be part of the initial, initial spark, the initial inauguration, the fire of passion saying, thank you for this amazing house that we just built. But instead, so instead of saying, sure, you could bring an, an inaugural offering, God says, you know what? You get to light the candles. How is that parallel? How is that going to make him feel better for not being part of the initial spark? Okay, I would say it's akin to if you just opened your first company and you finally built the building of your dreams, your storefront, your factory, whatever it is, and you have a ribbon, ribbon cutting ceremony and you invite the mayor of the town and the rabbi and your parents and everyone's there and there's music and hors d'oeuvres and you cut the ribbon. And then the next day, your uncle Louis or Dimitri is like, what's going on here? Why didn't you invite me to the, the ribbon cutting ceremony? And you're like, oh, gosh, Louis, I'm so sorry. I forgot to invite you. Don't worry. You can turn on the lights in the office whenever you want. Just come over, turn on the lights. You guys get it? So what are some questions we have to ask? in order to understand the parallel. What do we have to know about the menorah? What's special about the menorah here? Why the menorah? Why, the, why is the lighting of the menorah similar in some way to these inauguration offerings? He wants to be part of the first. And let me throw out a few more questions. Let's say God is saying, Aaron, don't worry, you get to do the work, you get to do services inside the tabernacle, so you're part of it, right? So why the menorah? What else could God have said to Aaron that he gets to do in the tabernacle? You know what the job of the high priest is? The Kohanim? What do they do inside the temple? Let me give you a hint, yeah? Yeah, yeah, sacrifices, offerings. Let me give you a hint. Everything. <laughs> they do everything in the temple. So why is God saying, don't worry, you get to light the candles? Why didn't he say, don't worry, you get to do everything. <laughs> Every day. Okay, question number one. Question number two is, 
if he wants to be part of the inauguration, well, he's not getting to be part of the inauguration. Question number three is maybe he wanted to do something voluntary. Right? Maybe he just wanted to do part of something that was a voluntary offering. So if that's the case, what's the problem with the menorah? It's a requirement, daily requirement, light the menorah every day. Okay, question number four. If Aaron, if his, if God's basically telling him, don't worry, you get to do everything. That's, you get to do, you know, you get to do stuff. So why did he tell him specifically the menorah? Why didn't he choose a, a mitzvah done in the temple that's really unique for Aaron? Because according to Jewish law, anyone can light the menorah in the temple. Not just the priests, not just Kohanim. If you guys wanted to, you weren't, you're not allowed in the area where the menorah was, but if you had a really long candle, you could light the menorah. By standing outside, you could reach in and light the menorah. So why is this special? Why is he telling him this? You get it? You like the questions? Why not tell him you get to go inside the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur and light the incense? Only you are allowed to do that. That brings peace between the Jewish nation and God. Okay, that I would understand. But the menorah, it's like a minor mitzvah. You guys with me? Okay, so this is what the Ramban says. The Ramban says, really, that's not what's going on here. Really, what God is saying to Aaron is, don't worry. Your descendants are going to be part of another inauguration that's going to take place in the temple thousands of years from now. What inauguration involving the kindling of lights in the temple might he be talking about? Hanukkah. Hanukkah, the menorah that we all know and love, which is not actually a menorah. What we all know is a, is a Hanukkah. How many branches are on your menorah? Eight. Eight with a shamish, right? How much how many were in the temple? Seven. So it's a different thing, but our the one we do is a remembrance of the one that they did. So says the Ramban, really what God is saying to Aaron is don't worry, your descendants are going to be part of a lighting that's going to take place, of, of an inauguration of the temple. The temple's going to become defiled by the Greeks, and your descendants are going to come and fight off the Greeks, the Kashmanayim, and they're going to re- inaugurate the temple and that one is going to be so special it's going to last forever and the jewish people will continue lighting those candles for all time interesting it's nice it's a cute idea right but i don't think it's sufficient to answer the questions with all due respect to the ramban why don't i think it's sufficient for a couple of reasons anyone have any problems with the ramban's explanation It didn't last. The second temple was destroyed, right? <laughs> Certainly didn't last. So one might say that from this Ramban, that every Jew, when they light the candles in their house, they become like a Kohen, a Kohen Gadol, a high priest. And, and actually, it's, it's, it says stuff like that in the, in the holy books, that when we light the Hanukkah candles in our house, we become like a priest. And our house has the sanctity of the temple. But let's be honest. There's no temple today. That one didn't last either. And on to, additionally, I would ask, but
But there were other inaugurations of the temple. There was the first temple. That one had to be inaugurated. There was the second temple. That one had to be inaugurated. Why is God telling Aaron, don't worry, your ancestors someday are going to light, do another inauguration, like another one? What about the first time the temple was built? Or the second time, the, the first time the second temple was built? So I'd like to share with you what I believe the answer is to the Ramban's questions. Okay, and maybe if we get this idea, we can go through the rest of the Parsha and try to pull out some other nuggets of inspiration. So in life, if you've hung out with me enough, you've heard me say this many times, there are three phases to every experience. Guys, pay close attention. You just graduated, Kate. Ronnie, you're going to get a job soon, start a new job, starting a new relationship, just got married, Steph, right? New things are called stage number one, which is the inspiration phase. Love at first sight, beginner's luck, where things are exciting, fresh, new. And we all love that, and we're addicted to it. We're, in fact, we're inspiration junkies. We're always running after the next new inspiration. The problem is, is that the way God made the world is that inspiration doesn't last. You can be inspired one day, but the next day it fades, it goes away. And that's the way it's going to be with your job, with your marriage, with everything you do in life. The inspiration quickly fades. So then what? Then we're left in the darkness. And most people, what do they do at that moment of darkness? They're no longer feeling it. They give up. They quit. They they. They quit the job or they break up and they look for someone else. They try to get inspired again. And that's the biggest problem we can make in life because inspiration is not meant to last. Inspiration is a gift. It's a gift to, to get us in the door. It's a gift to get us to start the relationship or to show us what could be if we do the work and then begins stage two which is known as the integration phase where it's our job to now earn that inspiration through work it's akin to the jews walking through the desert and this paradigm is explained in the kabbalistic writings through the story of passover the exodus on the night of passover the jews receive an incredible inspiration then they're dumped in the desert. They walk through the desert for 49 days and they begin working on themselves and trying to get themselves back up one day a different level till they get back on Shavuos, back to the 50th level of spirituality that they achieved on the night of Passover, except then it was a free gift and now they've earned it. And then the process begins anew. So that's, that's the story of our lives. And I, I'm, I'm telling you right now, this message will change your life. And it has changed my life because, I mean, we all think it. When things go sour, we all instinctively think it's time to quit. We grew up in a, in a disposable generation, right? We don't fix stuff. We buy new stuff, right? Well, with $5 a gallon, you know, and, and inflation, we might start fixing stuff again. You might, sec, you might think again be, before throwing out your iPhone 20 in order to get the iPhone 21. You might instead think maybe it's time to fix it, right? Because life's not cheap. 
and neither are experiences or relationships. Relationships are not cheap. And if you invested a year of your life in getting to know someone, so maybe you should invest another 10 years of your life making the relationship work, okay? It's not easy, but this is where the gold is. This is where true happiness lies in commitments, committing to continue to grow and to give and to, and to work things out when the inspiration leaves, okay? That's, you've heard me say that before and I'll say it again because it's so important. And then comes the, the, the second inspiration and that one, that one lasts. So, so Aaron is disappointed because he's not part of that initial inauguration, that first inspiration. And he says, I want to be part of that first. It's so exciting. Says God, you know what? Your portion is even greater. Why? Because you get to light the menorah every single day. What do you think the symbolism of lighting the menorah is every day in the temple? Ah, oh, rekindling the spark every day. You got to get yourself into it. How do you rekindle the spark? You want to hear the answer? Through little actions. You're not going to rekindle the spark by having a wedding night every day of the week. Not happening. But giving your spouse a I love you note in their lunch or calling them throughout the day or doing the dishes or taking out the trash. Those are ways we say I love you and those are ways we kindle, rekindle the inspiration. In Judaism, that's called mitzvahs. Mitzvahs are small actions that enable us to hold on to inspiration. And that's the only way to hold on to inspiration. On the la we just got back from Israel with our family. And on the last day of our trip, we sat all the kids together with their cousins around the table. And we asked each kid to say their highlight of their trip and something they were going to take with them in a small action. And it was amazing to hear the kids say different things that they wanted to do because really that's the only way to hold on to inspiration. The uh, Kedushas Levi, great Hasidic master says, inspiration is like a soul. In order for a soul to exist in this world, it needs a body. What is the body of a soul? It's action. You gotta put the inspiration into action. So that that is, I believe, the message of the menorah. And that has the ability to last forever. So what God is telling Aaron is that the second phase is even greater than the first phase. Because that's what that's real work. It's who who isn't inspired at the first time, at the wedding, or at the beginning of that job, or at the beginning of the Right? Who isn't? Who wouldn't be inspired? The beginning, the first day of the inauguration of the temple of the tabernacle, but that's not that's not unique. What's unique is who can stay inspired. Right? It's not unique to go up on says the famous line in uh, Psalms, "Who me yala bahar Hashem, umi umi yamud bahar kadsho." It's not unique to go up on the mountain of God. It's not unique to climb up and have a high, ex exciting, inspirational experience. 
What's unique is if you stay there. <laughs> Nobody can stay there. Everyone loses the inspiration, but can you get back? Can you climb back up after you fall? <laughs> so this week's Parsha, the Jewish people leave Mount Sinai. They leave the inspiration of Mount Sinai. They had the most inspiring experience at Mount Sinai. And now they begin wandering through the desert. And you know what happens? The inspiration fades very, very quickly. They right away start complaining. They find stuff to complain about. Don't worry. Jewish people, they'll figure it out. They complain. They, can't, they, they miss going to the bathroom. They complain about the food they used to eat. And that's the kvetching. There's a, there's a book about the Yiddish language called Born to Kvetch. So why are Jews, Jews so good at kvetching? What is kvetching? Yeah. Okay. That certainly is is a good recipe for disaster. They say the rest the, the secret to happiness is low expectations. And it's true. If you don't feel that you if you feel entitled, you will always be let down. If you feel I don't deserve anything. I am on this world. It's a gift to be alive. I don't deserve a moment of this. I've been given blessings from the moment I was born. God gives me air to breathe, sunlight, relationships, some positive, some negative. But the positive far outweighs the negative, although we don't always feel that way. When we're going through trauma and suffering, we don't see the good. But the reality is, is if we feel unentitled, then every drop of goodness is a pleasant surprise. Right? Because really, who says we should have any good in our life? So good being uh, low expectations. Maybe we have too high expectations. What would be what could be another possible reason? why we complain so much. What is complaining another sign of? That you're not happy. Yeah, why? Wait, so complaining is a sign that you're not happy? Okay. So you're not happy, but Okay, so along the lines of what Ronnie said, you're discontent, right? You're not satisfied with what you have. But is there a positive root of complaining, perhaps? When a person... Ah, being dissatisfied and looking for more. Complaining is a sign of someone who is always looking for more. Now, that could be negative, but it could also be positive. The Jewish people throughout history have been transforming the world. Literally, for the better, in most cases, revolutionizing the world from every innovation in every field, whether it's in politics or psychology or art, fashion, right, science. Jewish people are at the forefront of every major religion. Of, what? Law? For sure. For sure. Jews have made an impact in every industry. Why is that? Perhaps it's because we're not satisfied with the status quo. We always want to improve the world because what's the raison d'etre of the Jewish people? To perfect ourselves and perfect the world. 
So in order to do that, we have to have innate dissatisfaction with the way things are. Fantastic. And one last possible explanation, I believe, is that what does it mean? What does the word Jew mean? Yehudi. Um, it's the word. The name of God is in the name Yehuda. The name Yehuda actually is made up of the Yud Hey Vav Hey of God, right? But but what is it actually? What's the root of the word? It comes from the word Hoda. Finally, what's Hoda mean? Gratefulness. The name Jew means one who is grateful. So it could. <laughs> I say it all the time. It could be that. The Arizal explains that the area where you're most challenged is the area where you're meant to work in this world. So it could be that our mission of the Jewish people is to learn to be grateful, which all mitzvahs teach us to be grateful for the little pleasures in our life, making a blessing before eating, making a blessing, saying thank you when you come out of the bathroom, right? Literally throughout the day, different opportunities to say thank, thank you is because our job in this world is to learn to be grateful. And therefore, we have the most resistance in that area. And we have to learn to overcome our inclination to be ungrateful. And so the Jewish people start complaining. And, of course, the Parsha ends with Miriam criticizing Moshe, complaining about Moshe, who she felt was living on a higher, thinking that he was better than the other prophets. And... Perhaps we can now understand, better understand this, this idea of the second Passover. Second Passover, there's a group of Jews that come and they say, it's not fair. We're dissatisfied that we missed out on Passover. And God says, you know what? Take two. You can get another Passover. Because the whole message of Passover is celebrating that first inspiration. Celebrating that first inspiration when we started as our nation, when we became a nation. It's the most important positive mitzvah in the Torah. There are two positive mitzvahs that if you don't do them, there's a punishment. Normally, if you don't do a positive, there's no punishment. Right? If you eat something you're not allowed to eat, not kosher, there's a punishment in the Torah. But if you don't put on tefillin, if you don't give charity, no punishment. It's up to you. You want to do positive? Do it. If you don't, no punishment. But there's two positive mitzvahs that there is a punishment for. One of them is not observing the Passover offering. Because this Passover experience, the rituals of Passover night, is our inauguration into our nation. It's literally saying, I identify as a Jew. I'm part of the nation. And it's a night that we give over the values and the story of where we came from to the next generation. So Passover is that important. But they literally say, we want to be part of that first. We want to experience that first inspiration again, because that's where it all starts. We need that first inspiration, but then we have to do the work after the inspiration leaves. And I'll conclude with with an idea that we have this little book of the Torah, which is made up of these tiny little verses, two little verses inside these nuns, these backward little nuns. So letter nun, what's the numerical value of letter nun? 50, close, 50. We mentioned that according to Kabbalah, there are 50 levels of spirituality in this world. On the night of Passover, we lifted up to the 50th level. And then we fell down and we have 49 days of counting of the Omer to reach back up to that 50th level. The nuns represent the 50th level. That now it's our turn. We just left Mount Sinai. It's our turn to own 
this 50th level on the next part of our journey. And it always, the journey will continue with inspiration, integration, highs and lows for the rest of your life. We have to always be striving to reconnect to that 50th. And we learn in the verse inside these two little nuns talks about the journeying through the desert. When did the Jewish people journey? When the cloud, the presence of God lifted up. When God's presence is felt, you know what happens? We stop traveling. When does the journeying take place? When God's presence leaves. And then we have to go searching and we feel alone and we're empty and we're journeying and traveling. That is when the real connection to God takes place. I always say that that if a person finds himself lost in the desert, in the in the in the forest, on a dark night, dark stormy night, don't know where you can walk, you don't know if there's a cliff or a river. What do you do? You wait for the flash of lightning. When the flash of lightning enumulates the sky, you can now chart out the next 10 steps of your journey. But when do you walk? In the darkness. The lightning represents the moments of inspiration where we feel so high and so connected, but the real growth takes place when the inspiration leaves. When the cloud departs and we're left alone, that's when the real growth takes place on our journey through this world. So I, I, I often mention the story of footsteps. There's a famous story uh, written by some Christian poet, an old, old story, Footsteps in the Stand. I was walking along the beach. I found myself walking with God along the beach, and I saw the f- footsteps in the stand that represented my life. And I saw that there were two sets of footsteps, but then in the moments of the hardest times in my life, I saw only one foot set of footsteps. And I said to God, God, why did you abandon me during those hard times? Where were you? Why do you leave me alone? And God says, no, no, no. In those hard times in your life, those footsteps, those are mine. And I was carrying you. So we'll conclude with an amazing, amazing idea. There is a debate. Uh, the top, we learn out the laws of Shabbos from the building of the tabernacle. And therefore, the things you're not allowed to do on Shabbos are the 39 creative activities that were done in the temple. And in order to biblically violate Shabbos, you have to do them in the same way with the same intentions that they were done in the temple. For example, um, digging a hole was something that was necessary and part of the construction of the tabernacle, but it had to be done with the intention of digging a hole. If you dig the hole for the purpose of the dirt, but not for the hole, so you didn't do anything wrong biblically. Okay? I'll give you another example. Um, biblically, biblically, there was, there were, you're not allowed to kill animals on Shabbos. Not allowed to kill animals on Shabbos. We don't kill mosquitoes or flies or anything like that. And by the way, a lot of the stuff that I mentioned to you is not allowed rabbinically but i'm just talking on a biblical level the type of slaughtering that was done in the tabernacle was the slaughtering of animals for use of their hides for a productive creative purpose if you have a mosquito in your house and you want to kill it is that a productive creative purpose the answer is no 
You just don't want the mosquito around. You don't want to use the mosquito's wings to make something. So therefore, it would be biblically permitted. Okay? Now, again, we don't kill anything on Shabbos because we also don't do things for other reasons. But I'm just speaking on a biblical level. So creative actions are not allowed on Shabbos. What about destroying stuff? You allowed to destroy stuff on Shabbos? Based upon what we just learned, it's creative actions that aren't allowed. So if you want to just take your phone and throw it across the room, might be recommended. That's biblically not a problem. You're not destroying anything. You're not creating anything. You're just destroying something which was not done in the creation of the tabernacle. But there was a type of creative destruction. What's a type of creative destruction? Oh, excellent. So that would be an example. Ripping something in half is an example of something you're not allowed to do on Shabbos. Right? We rip toilet paper before Shabbos. Right? What's another type of destruction which actually has a creative intention? So think, okay, I'm just going to expand on that. Think about um, home renovations. How in home renovations is there destruction that's actually creative? When you when you break down a wall in order to do what? Rebuild it, expand. So biblically speaking, if were you to destroy something in order to rebuild it, that would be biblically prohibited. That's a creative type of destruction because that was done in the tabernacle. When was it done in the tabernacle? They took apart the Mishkan in order to travel. That was a taking apart in order, right? So there's an interesting opinion in the Talmud which says you're only obligated for destroying something if you rebuild it in the exact same place. Right? Break down a wall to build up that wall. But if you break down something to build it someplace else, that wouldn't be included. And the Talmud asks, what are you talking about? Every destruction of the tabernacle was in order to rebuild it where? Someplace else. When they traveled. So says the rabbi, no. It says in the Torah that we traveled according to the word of God. And therefore, wherever we were was according to the word of God. So I want to explain that to you in the words of one of the, the great rabbis of the previous generation, Rukhaim Shmuelevitz, has a beautiful metaphor. He says a mother who's going about her day with a, uh, an infant baby in, her, in a snuggly. So if you ask the mother, where did you go today? She's going to tell you, I went to the bank. I went to the supermarket. I went to pick up my other kids from school. And then I came home. If you ask the baby, where did you go today? What's the baby going to say? I was in my mother's arms. The message is, is that wherever we journey, we're in Hashem's arms. Whether the cloud is with us and we're inspired, or whether the cloud ascends and we're left alone, God is carrying us through the steps of our journey. Thank you guys for listening. Have an awesome Shabbos. And uh, Kate, let's get it. Can we be in touch? I want to give you a call.